Years ago, a guy tells a story, and he was with the uh, Billy Graham crusade, that a businessman came forward one evening, and he accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Next Sunday, this same man went to a church that he would kind of attend, not faithfully all the time. And after the service, he walked up to one of the leading elders of the church, and he said this to him. He said, hey, the other night, last, uh, the other week, I went to that Billy Graham meeting out in the ballpark. And he said, when I was there, I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. The elder said, yes, I heard about that, and I am very, very delighted. The businessman, the man who received Christ, asked him a question. He said, hey, how long have you and I been associated in business together? The elder said, well, we've been associated about, I think it's 23 years. And the guy said, asked him another question. He said, did you know Jesus Christ? as your Lord and Savior the entire time? The other said, what? Why, yes, I have. The guy looked at him and he said, well, it's funny. I don't remember you ever speaking to me about Jesus during that entire time. He said, as a matter of fact, I thought very highly of you, so much so that I felt that if anyone could be as fine as a man as you are and not be a Christian, then I didn't need to either. Ouch. Did you feel that? I read that. I felt that. And I think that illustrates a really important point for us. And something that we're going to be talking about as we look at this sermon. First of all, we see that our good deeds only go so far. Yes, we are to preach the gospel with our lives, but those deeds need to be followed with a message. A message that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, that Jesus Christ is the only way that we can get to heaven. A message that says the reason why I is not so that I can earn heaven, but as a result that heaven is in my heart. 23 years. 23 years. The title of this illustration is called Discipleship Includes Evangelism. To be an elder, to be a Christian, working next to someone for 23 years, and not ever engaging that person in a conversation as to the hope that lies within you, I'm sorry, folks. That's not discipleship. God places us in certain environments. He places us in certain circles. He places us in certain jobs so that you and I can be a witness to those who don't know him. It's part and parcel of discipleship. He actually says a lot by saying nothing. 
he says a lot about his priorities, and he says a lot about his love or care for the lost. This is my first sermon I have ever preached from. Did you know that? It's one of my favorites. I absolutely love it, so it's going to be really, really hard (laughs) for me to keep it in a reasonable amount of time. But the reason why I love this sermon is because it speaks to the heart of the mission of Jesus Christ, but also the heart of God. The heart of God for lost people. And it's it's a great blueprint for us as disciples, as followers of Jesus Christ on how to have refreshing conversations. You see, we sometimes think that evangelism is left for the Billy Grahams, right? And we're like, oh, the Billy Grahams will handle evangelism. The pastor will handle evangelism. Or we think that we need to be Billy Graham when we evangelize. So we don't do it either way. Both are wrong. I'm going to show you what Jesus shows us in here from the master on how to have refreshing conversations. I also like the sermon, you get to use the word wooder quite often, so you'll be hearing me say it in the proper pronunciation throughout. So there's four parts uh, to this conversation. The first part is the thirsty, so let's jump right in. And I'm not going to always read uh, in the beginning all the verses, but as I hit on those points, we're going to kind of go through it so that way uh, we're not taking too much time up. But Jesus, he, he knows that the Pharisees have heard that he's making more disciples than John, or he's baptizing more disciples. Uh, so he, he heads, he left Judea and he heads towards Galilee. And we're going to pick up on verse 4. He had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, being weary from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. We'll stop there and talk about this, this first point. Um, one of the things that I want us to pick up on here is if you go back and if you read in verse 3, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And then in verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. This was not a geographical necessity. So even though Oh, and, and actually what is really interesting about this is the devout Jews, and we're going to pick up on this when the woman says what she says to him when he asks her for a drink of water, the devout Jews would actually go around Samaria. They didn't like the Samaritans at all. If they went through Samaria, they would feel that they would be defiled, let alone sit there and have a conversation with a Samaritan and a woman at that and ask her for a drink of water. So now you're engaging with her on a different level. You've been tired, wearied, thirsty. Let, let me ask you, when you're tired and weary and thirsty, do you feel like talking to anybody? Is that like your favorite time to talk to people? No. I mean, it happens, you know, I, I'll, you know whatever it is, I'm talking to people all day or 
you know, doing something, and I'm tired. And the last thing I want to do when I'm tired is engage in a conversation. But I want us to see the intentionality of Jesus Christ here and the intentionality of the mission of Jesus and God behind that mission. He had to pass through Samaria because it was God's will for him to do so. We are not going to evangelize unless we are intentional about it. That's the first step, is to understand that God calls us. It is part of his mission, as we are going to see Jesus says later on, for us to be intentional about it, to actually go into the areas where people are dying of thirst because they're not going to be coming here. We need to go to them. Jesus continues to progress his way into the depths of humanity. Jesus is thirsty and wearied because the second person of the Trinity became man. That's why he's there. He entered into our pain and suffering. He entered into our humanity, and now he enters into this woman's world. He's intentional about it. And because Jesus is thirsty, he can offer this woman the water of life. Not only does he do that, so think about the, the steps that Jesus is taking, but he goes into enemy territory. And there are so many boundaries that we sometimes put up that Jesus just kind of breaks through all of them. Jesus doesn't see people the way that we see people. Jesus doesn't see Republicans and Democrats. He doesn't see red states and blue states. He doesn't see black or white. He sees people who are dying of thirst. That's what he sees. He crosses over a bunch of boundaries that the world has set up. Ethnic, religious, gender, and moral. The Samaritans were people that were, they were left behind during the exile. And they were, the foreigners were brought in and they intermarried. So the bloodline was then tainted and they began to worship foreign gods. Eventually, they turned back to worshiping Yahweh, however, in their own fashion, which we are going to see she brings up later on. So Jesus is crossing over all of these boundaries, and devout Jews had a disdain for them. They were the enemy. Jesus doesn't see that. He enters into this woman's world. He asks her for a drink of water. She's at the well for a certain reason. She's at the well during this time of day because this would have been in the mid-afternoon time. And during this time, she's alone, which women would not go to the well alone. Why was she there at this time and why was she alone? Because later on, we're going to discover that she is living in a sinful lifestyle. She's ashamed. She avoids contact with those of her community, so she comes out during this time. Do we see 
who Jesus is reaching here? He's not reaching the proper. He's not reaching the healthy. He's reaching those individuals that are on the fringe and the outskirts of society. He's going right into the heart of it. It's an example for all of us. He's doing this in a normal life setting. This isn't an evangelistic crusade. As a matter of fact, he just lost his team. They're out buying food. He does this just in a normal setting. This is life. He's walking. He goes here. He sits down. And there's a woman there. And he engages with her in a conversation. That's all. That's all it takes. I hope that we have a viewpoint of individuals, and I hope that I continue to have a viewpoint of individuals that Jesus has. He doesn't see people through the lenses that we put up. He sees people that are dying of thirst. He sees people that are cast out from society. He sees people that are hurting sees people that are lonely, and he doesn't ignore them, but he goes right to them. Guy tells a story about being on a subway and hearing this, someone speak behind him, saying these words, vulgar words or whatever it was, every couple seconds. And he turns around, and he sees this, this guy, and he's all disheveled, right? What do we do? What do, I, what do I do? I'm like, all right, brother, this is my stop. See ya. And he says, everyone's looking at him. And he sits next to this lady, this disheveled guy sits next to this lady, starts touching her hand, touching her, her leg, right? So now we're like, Cindy's like, I'm grabbing my purse. I'll whack that dude. Right? So, and then he watches what this lady does. So after a while, she puts down her paper. She looks at him. And she says, do you know where your stop is in a gentle way? Shook his head, yeah. Do you need help to where you need to go? No, I don't. The guy was amazed and he said, I don't know what motivated this woman to treat a stranger with such kindness, but the way that she asked these questions showed that she was genuinely concerned for his welfare. Instead of backing away, she went right in and got involved. Folks, that's what Jesus does with those who need him. That's what someone did with you and I, isn't it? Someone got involved in our lives and shared the gospel. We don't want to see people through the lenses of this world. We want to see them that they're thirsty and we know where they can get a drink. Next part, the water, verses 10 through 26. So she, he asks her for the drink and she's really taken back, back by that because they don't normally engage in that fashion. And she points out the fact that he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan and then Jesus responds to her with this. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, 
would have asked him, and he would have given you the living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get the living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become a well of water springing up into eternal life. You ever eaten a pretzel? Who likes pretzels? Yeah. He's starting to mouth watering for him now. Eat one. Can you eat one pretzel? It's kind of hard, right? What happens when you eat a pretzel? You eat usually another pretzel. Because the salt in the pretzel kind of creates that desire for more. And then you're eating a whole bag of pretzels. And then your wife or husband's asking you where the pretzels went. Guy tells a story about preaching. And he says, I was invited to preach in Texas. And he said, you've all heard of the place called Nowhere. Well, it was 25 miles beyond that. The crowds were teeming that day, all 17 of them. He said, I think it was rally day. I preached with all the fervor and passion of my heart. When I got through, this tall Texan came up to me and said, you were wrong. Well, sir, I, he said, I've been wrong on many occasions. Can you give me the information? He said, in your sermon, you made a moronic statement. Now, I'm glad I'm not preaching in Texas because no one has ever said that to me before. You know, maybe we'll give us some time. But uh, he said, you made a moronic statement. He said, you can, he said, you said you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. How many of you have said that? I said it this past week. And he said, well, you're wrong. You can give him salt. Oh, okay, yeah. That's what he said. You can give him you can give him salt, which is going to do what? Create a desire or a need for that water. Folks, when we look at our calling as salt in this world, that is part of it, is to make people thirsty, to create a thirst. Jesus kind of does this in this section here. It's kind of fascinating. We're going to go through it. But notice what he does. How does he engage this woman? She's got a real physical need, doesn't she? She needs water. And Jesus takes that physical need and he kind of flips it. He uses it and he says to her, look, I'm going to give you water, but I'm going to give you living water. And he does what? Creates an attraction for her. She, he gets her interest, and what he is doing is he is taking her present physical need, he's using that physical need and making it a spiritual one. He's switching the conversation from natural to physical, and he's using the context of where they're at. So there's just a few tips on how we can engage people and kind of create this thirst but he also does it in another way. He makes them, makes her dissatisfied. What does he say? Whoever drinks of this water is going to what? Thirst again. And I think that we can take that 
And we can, in our conversations, look at the water of this world and create a dissatisfaction for people. Point, to pe- point people to a greater satisfaction, a greater satisfaction that's only found in Jesus Christ. I've had that water before. I've done those things before. You're doing those things now. Are you satisfied? No. Do you know why? I'm going to tell you why. Because there is nothing in this world that is going to ultimately satisfy you apart from Jesus Christ, apart from that living water. He creates this dissatisfaction. He's like, ah, you can drink that all day. Guess what? You're going to be thirsty again. I am going to give you something that is going to quench your thirst, not today, not tomorrow, but for all eternity. And she's like, boom, give me this water. But she's still thinking earthly water. But he's using that. What's funny about her is she wants this living spring or, you know, a spring that is always bubbling over so she doesn't have to do what? Come to the well and deal with what? The consequences of her sin. Hey, give me this water. I'll take that. You, you got that? That way I don't have to come to this well. And you can see as this conversation is happening, what's happening to her view of Jesus? It's kind of changing. Are you, are you greater than Jacob? Who, who is this guy that's engaging me in this conversation and now talking about living water? And make them dissatisfied with the world. Point them to the living water in Jesus Christ. What does Jesus do next? And I hope my evangelism class gets this. You and my evangelism class, how do we, how do we dig deeper in our conversations with people, into their lives? How do we figure out what's going on? Say it, someone... Ask a question. People have been paying attention. Thank you very much. Jesus asks a question. It's as simple as that. Now, we don't have the ability that Jesus has. So let's not go where Jesus went and talking about the husbands that this person has. But here's, here's what I want to say. We, we sometimes think in evangelism that we need to have all the right answers. That's not it at all. You just have to ask good questions. People love to talk about themselves. You start asking questions, people will just be like, and then they're going to end up telling you something that you never knew. And that is how you dig deeper. Now, I think Jesus does this because he's following the cultural norms and he really, you know, is asking about her husband because he wants to respect that family and to bring the whole family into the the conversation regarding salvation, but we also know that Jesus knows the hearts and minds of all men and women, and he knows exactly why she is coming to this well. So Jesus gets to the heart of the problem. The heart of the woman's problem isn't coming to the well, is it? The heart of the woman's problem is why she doesn't want to come to the well with everyone else because she is living in sin. Here's the goal when we're talking to people. 
is try to dig deeper in their lives and hear their stories. You never know what is causing them or keeping them from coming to places like this. I started doing this more after I taught the evangelism class. And I tell you, you'll be surprised at how many people have had an interaction with Christians or have had Christian parents who raised them and it just left a terrible taste in their mouth. And we can judge from afar, but unless we really engage them, unless we really begin to ask them about themselves, we're never going to know what the real reasons are. And we need to be able to deal with those real reasons. It's exactly what Jesus does here. Gets to the heart of the issue, but he does it in such a gentle way. Do you think at this point, this woman feels safe with Jesus? Yeah. He's already shown her love and compassion being a Jew and crossing those boundaries that they have set up. Engaging with her, talking to her, I think she feels safe, safe enough to kind of admit the truth. Because what does, what does she say? I, I have no husband. And Jesus is like, you're right. You've had five, and the one you're with right now, uh-uh, he ain't your husband either. And then what does she say? All right, her prophet. <laughs> so now, so now he, she's like, that's her admitting guilt. Good job, Jesus. You're right. You hit the nail right on the head. Therefore, let's change the conversation. <laughs> because that is exactly what people are going to do as soon as you start hitting that mark, isn't it? Be prepared for the distraction because it's going to come. Anytime we begin to hit home, people are going to be like, all right, Jesus, what about the pygmies? Because what if they don't hear the gospel? Are they going to go to hell, Jesus, if the pygmies don't hear the gospel? How about evil, Jesus? What about the evil in this world? How about suffering? How can a good God allow suffering? Jesus, is it, is it this mountain or this mountain? Is it Baptist or Pentecostal? What about the Bible, Jesus? It's been written by humans. And my favorite, what about the Crusades? It never fails when I engage someone in a conversation about their salvation, personal salvation, faith in Jesus Christ, sin. Oh, yeah? What about the Crusades? Gotcha. I'm like, they're wrong. Okay, let's move on. The Crusades were wrong. We're okay to admit that. That's fine. Jesus actually answers her question, doesn't he? So, another tip. Answer the question but get back to the heart of the issue. Get back to Jesus Christ as personal Savior. Because that's what he does. He answers the question. And in answering the question, he teaches us all something and something that we need to convey to people. Guess what? It's not about this church or that church. It's not about this mountain or that mountain. It's about belief in him creating worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. It's not about religiosity. 
It's not about our traditions. It's not about what denomination you attend to. It's about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So what he does. He brings it back, and in doing so, it's okay to say people are wrong. We're okay with that, as long as we're trying to get to that ultimate truth. Because he says, we, we worship what we know. You're, you're wrong, I'm sorry. But he brings it back, salvation comes from the Jews. There comes a time where it's not about this mountain. It's not about that mountain. God is seeking worshipers in spirit and truth, and guess what? That can happen anywhere. And I think it's a good lesson for us because we can get wrapped up in our traditions. We can get wrapped up in our churchiosity. You want to worship God through rap, rock and roll, whatever it may be, go nuts. As long as it is in spirit, and I think he's referring to the inner spirit, but also originating from the Holy Spirit. And in truth, that's, that's worship. Silence, solitude, however we go about doing it. That is all, all those other things are external. It doesn't make a Christian. Jesus makes a Christian. He tells her that and he brings her back to himself. Notice she says and asks him, tells him about the Messiah, and he says, I who speak to you am he. Bring the conversation constantly back to personal salvation in Jesus Christ. Don't be distracted with all those other areas. I just want to break down kind of this conversation. This is pretty practical here. So create a dissatisfaction with the world, with the life that they have. Make a transition from the natural to the spiritual. Ask a question. Help them see their sinful disposition. Be prepared for a distraction. Focus on personal salvation and emphasize Jesus Christ as the only solution. Let's go to the next part real quick. Is there's this intermission now. The food, verses 27 through 28. At this point, his disciples, here they come, here comes the Calvary. They were amazed that he had been speaking with this woman, yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come and see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out to the city and they were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap, for which you have not labored, others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. You know, I always got to throw up a food ad just to get your 
stomach's ready for lunchtime. I'm not tempted by McDonald's, so. Do you know how many food ads are out there and how many kids see food ads today? So in, in 96 half-hour blocks of preschool programming on Nickelodeon, Disney Channel, and Cartoon Network, 130 food-related advertisement. Children see 5,000 food ads per year. Teenagers, 6,000. And there's also a study that was done for adults and during the 2012 Winter Olympics, one observer noted that about half of all the ads were food. Food-related, fast food restaurants, and so on. When you add to that the rise of reality TV shows based on food and centered on cooking and all the restaurants that we see, there's a truth. We are obsessed with food and eating. <laughs> Does everyone agree? I love food. How many people love food? How many people love to eat? I love eating, love food, but I got to tell you what, I was convicted when I read this. I had to ask myself, am I more satisfied with eating physical food as opposed to spiritual food? More precisely, am I more concerned about feeding my physical belly or even my spiritual belly with food for myself, or am I more concerned with God's work? in accomplishing what he has asked us, commanded us to do. I think that, uh, you know, they were in a new town, the disciples, and they're like, hey, I'm going to go check out the Samaritan sandwich shop. Heard a lot of good things about it. Peter, of course, leading the way. Peter's probably hungry, and they all go out. And then they come back, and they're probably wicked upset at this point because Peter didn't know that they had Dine Dash or Door Dash or whatever it was. And Peter's like, hey, did they have delivery? Because I just walked four miles for this meal and Jesus got food. Who, who brought this guy food? And if we think that the Samaritan woman was the only one thinking on a natural plane, our disciples always prove us wrong. So there they are. They pull up and they're wondering, what, what's happening here? And Peter's like, who's gave this guy food? And Jesus has to do what? Correct their understanding. It's a teachable moment for them. And not only what he is doing, but what he says right here. Where is our ultimate satisfaction to be found? It's to be found in doing God's will. That's what should fill our bellies. That's what should make us satisfied. That is what we should yearn after. Jesus did. Let me ask you something. Are there unsaved people in Gorham? How about Westbrook? Standish? Buxton? Well, you know, you know they're in Buxton. <laughs> If there are unsaved people in all these places, is God's work accomplished? Is it done? No, it's not, is it? What's our job? Finish. That's what he says. What's, our, what's his food? Accomplish. 
finish. That was passed on to us, isn't it? People dying of thirst, people dying of hunger spiritually, you and I have the meals to give them. We need to go out to them. The danger of the church is not just that we can fill our bellies with all of these worldly distractions. And believe me, I think right now the church is off mission. We're distracted. We're distracted by all these arguments, distracted by us versus them. And people are dying, dying. I love preaching every Sunday. I, I love preparing, hopefully, what is a good meal that you don't throw up after you leave outside here. I, I love giving you and feeding to you, but I don't want it to end there because we can come in week after week We can eat four-course meals. We can feed our faces until we're sated. But if we're not going out and sharing that, we're failing in our discipleship. When I first became a pastor, I think I, I had good motivations. I had good goals. One of my biggest goals was truth. I just wanted to preach the truth. It's changed. It's changed. I still want to preach the truth. But if I had goal right now, if I had to ask myself what goal is, love. Number one, your love for Jesus Christ. Secondly, your love for each other as he has loved us. And thirdly, your love for lost people who don't know him. We have dangers where we could be off feeding our faces when other people are doing the work and the mission of God. Everyone, including myself. We need to go out there because they're hungry. And the goal is seen afterwards that the work that God has given this church to do, He's given us a work to do, to take His meal into this community, and we need to work until it's completely done. As far as I know, the tribulation is not happening because the fullness of the Gentiles has not come in. So guess what? Got a lot of mouths to feed. Final part that we see here is the refreshed, verses 39 through 42. So from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. They were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. We have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. You ever hear of um, sudden savant syndrome? Has anyone heard of sudden savant syndrome? I get to tell you something new excited. It's a, it's a real thing. Uh, so uh, an example, 28-year-old gentleman from Israel, he could, he could play the piano, he could fiddle on the piano, you know, a little bit. All of a sudden, he goes into a mall one day, he sits down at the piano, and he begins playing like he was at a concert, like he's been playing the piano for years. He says his friends were completely 
astonished I was playing like I had been educated for years in playing the piano. And I understood music in an intricate way. He realized what the major scale and minor scales were, what the chords were, where to put his fingers, and he instantly was able to recognize harmonies of the scales in that song. He went home and he began to Google music theory. Guess what? He knew it all. This is called sudden savant syndrome, and it happens in people. And there's no history of injury or central nervous system disease or anything like that. The new skill is automatically coupled with a detailed epiphany, detailed knowledge of the underlying rules of music, art, math, or other areas. They know things which they never learned. The skill is also accompanied with an obsessive-compulsive component. They absolutely have to do it. There's an overpowering need to engage in this. It's much as a force as it is a gift. Do you know what the average age of onset is? 47.2 years. I'm right on the cusp. Right on the cusp. Let's try it out. La, la, la. Is that good? Do I have Sudden Savant Opera? <laughs> Let's try. You sure? I'm waiting. I'm 46. I'm 46. Yeah. Does anyone want me to play a little tune? Isn't that crazy? I'm waiting. Could happen. I'll be famous. I got another syndrome. It's called Sudden Savior Syndrome, and this woman has it. She's got sudden savior syndrome. Everything about this woman changed because of a conversation she had with Jesus Christ. I tell you some of the symptoms of sudden savior syndrome. I'm sure we've experienced some of these before. Telling people that Jesus is savior. Bringing others to meet Jesus. Telling everyone that you are a big fat sinner and forgetting about the water of this world. I want us to see the progression of this woman. I use this word refreshed for a reason, because not only is the woman, her thirst is quenched, but what does she do? She goes out and refreshes the village people, and the whole process is refreshed, isn't it? Starts all over again. Go back to when... This woman leaves the well. What does she leave behind? Her water pot. Now, I don't want to make too much of it, but I think he included it in there for a reason, don't you? What was the main reason she came to the well? She came to the well for water, but guess what? She got much, much more than she ever bargained for, didn't she? He ever thought, left it behind. I don't need that water anymore. I got the real stuff. Notice what she does next. I don't think she just left that water pot behind. I think she left something else. Her shame and her guilt. Who does she run to? She runs to the very people that she's trying to avoid. And not only does she run to the people she's been trying to avoid, she tells them, she's like, hey, 
Come and meet this guy. He told me what a filthy sinner I am. This is great. Is this the Messiah? You know you're a Jesus freak if you're running around telling people that you're a mess. And he's the answer. Runs to the people that she's been avoiding her whole life all because Jesus Christ sat down and had a conversation with her. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of Jesus Christ. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what happens when we intentionally engage those who are on the outskirts of this society. And then she runs and she's overflowing with this water. And what happens? She shares it with everyone else. That's discipleship. And you know at this point, Peter and all of them are just like, you know, he's got fries hanging from his mouth, and he's like, what just happened? They're like, they're dumbfounded. They have no idea what's going on. All, all they know is they left Jesus, and he was alone, and now they got this whole village coming. And they're like, dude, what happened? I'll tell you what happened, Peter. Jesus had a conversation with a woman, and this woman was saved, and then she runs and goes, to hell, goes ahead and tells the entire village, and now they're coming to Jesus. That's discipleship. That's what it means to be a Christian. Running out, sudden Savior syndrome. You remember when you were first saved, right? You couldn't stop talking about Jesus. That's all you wanted to tell people. Don't lose that. Go out. Engage people. Intentionally. Break through those barriers. God calls us to bring the living water to a world dying of thirst. Guy tells a story about doing an outreach. He used to run soccer academies for refugees and immigrants in Houston. And then when COVID hit, he couldn't do that anymore. So did he give up? He didn't. He began to engage people online, using soccer coaches to have matches online. And he gauged the population of individuals that were literally not connected with anyone. And in doing so, he would prompt them to have spiritual conversations. He began to talk about spiritual things. He led one individual from the Netherlands to Jesus Christ while gaming, and guess what that person did? He brought five others. He said, these platforms are perfect for the gospel because these people are hungry for it. Yes, there's a lot of reasons to avoid these areas, but he said, there could be more reasons to engage with them. Because that's where you can find the lost souls. Doesn't matter where it is, cross over into their world. That's what Jesus does. That's what he calls each and every single one of us to do. We don't want to be next to someone for 23 years. Jesus. Father, we praise you for these lessons that you give us.
Lord, and we, we know it's hard. It's hard to talk to people. Lord, but we also know that we're not alone in those conversations, that you are right there with us. Lord, we pray that you give us boldness. Pray that you give us wisdom. Most of all, we pray that you give us compassion and love and a heart for those who don't know you. Help us to follow in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior, bringing his truth and his life to those in need. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.